Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It is a great day for talk radio, albeit bleak. That's what we expect in November. And you know, if you hearken back 100 years ago, this Sunday, I mean, think about the bleakness of it all, especially in the aftermath of a charnel house that really cost the flower of a generation. 67,000 Canadians died in World War I. 150,000 wounded. We were a country of 8 million. I mean, the scale of that and the scope of that. And uh, this was to be the war to end all wars. And needless to say, it was not. As a matter of fact, it uh, may have begat the following war, but uh, what do we take away from all of this? Let's get our friend Conrad Black in here, the noted historian, author, and commentator. Conrad, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, John. So, you know, as we dial it back 100 years, and, uh, you know, again, Sunday, November 11th, uh, 11th hour, 11th day, 11th month, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the history behind all of this, and I know you set it out in your column for tomorrow's post, but, you know, it's uh, where allegiances and alliances come into play and they're like a, a, a series of dominoes that fall and maybe there's something to be taken from that because i've heard it said for example once the munition train started rolling uh there was no putting the genie back in the bottle that war was inevitable and there were so many uh different alliances cobbled together uh there was no turning back is that the way you interpret things yeah and they they had no idea how uh, what kind of a war it was going to be. Uh, you know, they hadn't had a major war in, in, in a century, really, since Waterloo. And, um, and and they had these alliances that were all on a hair trigger. So uh, it was uh, the equivalent in recent times was defense scenarios in, um, you know, in the... In the in the Cold War, that that consisted of fire on attack, which was the idea that if the Americans or the Soviet Union detected the approach of hostile aircraft or missiles, they would fire their own. Uh, uh, you know, which I, I look at. We got through the Cold War all right, but it was a it was a very dangerous scenario because you'd be firing without knowing exactly what was coming at you. But uh, we that was that equivalent to it that that. Um, Within a certain framework, it was quite in order under the treaty system for somebody to declare war on another country, uh, apparently oblivious to the fact that that would trigger a counter declaration more so so you 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 had Austria declare war Austria Hungary declare war on Serbia uh, I mean they, they had a grievance because their crown prince was murdered, but he wasn't murdered by by the government of Serbia and um Serbia called on Russia, its protector. Russia was the champion of Slavic states, supposedly. And then and then um, Germany declared war on Russia. Then Germany took it upon itself to demand that France pledge to remain neutral if Germany and Russia were at war. And France was Russia's ally. And the French told the Germans to get lost, so the Germans uh, declared war on France. And then they demanded that Belgium allow them to put their armies, drive their armies through Belgium into France. 
the Belgians said no dice, and the British declared war on the Germans. I mean, I mean it, it, each step, uh, uh, most of the steps had a certain rationale to them, but nobody thought the thing through and saw that all of a sudden everybody was at war with everybody else from from the Pyrenees to the Urals. And, and, uh, and, and it was assumed that these wars wouldn't last long any more than the Franco-Prussian War had, for example. But, of course, it went on for over four years. And, and uh, in addition, the, the, advance, the advantage at that time in war was with the defense. And so if you were going to conduct a successful offense, which was the only way to end a war, you were going to take terrible casualties. And you were essentially ordering men to charge artillery and machine guns, which is, a, which is certainly a way to run up your casualties. Right. And so this was like a war of attrition and uh, stalemate. Yeah. Trench warfare and uh, no man's land in between, which was a scorched earth policy. But you make it sound like there's a lot of bravado here. You know, these gallivanting uh, princes and uh, dukes and so on and so forth. And uh, they're leading, well, basically uh, people down a garden path here. But the alliance thing is the... Not deliberately, to be fair, John. I don't, I don't think any of them had any idea what they were getting into. And, and there was this theory that, that came from earlier times that uh, war was a dashing activity. It was dangerous, which lent it a certain <clears throat> flair and, and um, glamour in a way, but, but, uh, but not, not just colossal numbers of casualties. I mean, you know, 10,000 a day. On, on, on the first day of the Somme, there were 50,000 casualties. I mean, shocking numbers. Yeah, well, as much to do with technology, because they didn't understand that uh, they were, I guess, thinking they were fighting the last war, the Franco-Prussian War, or something like that. Or, or the Civil War, where in the United States was a great war just before that, but there, Lee, and I mean, the casualties were heavy enough, to be sure, but Lee and Grant and, and Sherman could, you know, they could attack without losing half their army doing it, you know? Yeah. Well, the idea, though, of these alliances, now, is that a good or a bad idea? For example, NATO right now, we we got this thing called Article 5, and for example, uh, if Russia were to attack Poland, uh, we're committed, the United well, States... Well, not, not quite, uh, because the succeeding articles, I mean, you're referring to the article that says an attack upon one is an attack upon all, right. but the succeeding article says each member will determine how it responds to that attack, so it, it's 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 a... If you take the two together, we aren't committed. If Russia attacks Poland, we don't actually have to do anything. But but uh, but the, in in practice, it leaves us the leeway to uh, to determine what to do. I mean, in fact, if Russia attacked Poland, I, 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 the United States in particular would do quite a few things, and I think most of the alliance would go with them in that. But uh, but uh, and it would be, by the way, it would be the most that would be the most insane military initiative in the history of the world if Russia did that. But um, but we've got some leeway. It's not quite like it was a hundred years ago. All right, I just wanted to point out that this is where uh, you get into these alliance situations, and you're sort of committed to, and one domino <clears throat> sort of trips the next, and so on. And next thing you know, you could be into a, a global conflagration. What well, do you, you see? The virtue of NATO, it has been the most successful alliance in history. Is it's a strictly defensive alliance, and and it, it, you, it's only activated if somebody is attacked, and nobody was attacked. The one time that the, the clause you mentioned was invoked 
was on the terrorist attack on the United States in 2001, and the alliance unanimously stated that it considered it an attack upon all of them, and all of the members of the alliance would cooperate with the United States in dealing with the, whoever the authors of it were. Uh, I mean, in practice, it was as, as much aimed at trying to collegialize American decision-making, but at least the, the alliance responded well. But a uh, hundred years ago, they, they, you know, the French were trying to get Alsace and Lorraine back. The Russians were trying to expand their influence in the Balkans. So were the Austro-Hungarians. The Germans were trying to expand in miscellaneous places and generally raise their, their influence. I mean, the only one of the major powers that wasn't actually trying to get anything out of it was, was the British, but they would not tolerate uh, the Germans uh, invading France or Belgium. Again, with Conrad Black, historian, commentator, and author. Well, you know, today you see the same kinds of scenarios. I mean, I guess it's just uh, cyclical or whatever, but uh, the Chinese expanding in the South China Sea, and uh, there's going to have to be, I mean, Japan is militarizing. There's the old uh, Latin expression, and it dials back to, I guess, the days of Plato. If you want peace, prepare for war. And Donald Trump is even talking about bolstering the military at unprecedented levels. Do you agree that if you want peace, you prepare for war? Yeah, that was uh, one of the I think it was one of uh, Caesar's generals who said that, and uh, and uh, essentially, I believe that to be true. And, and I, I, I think that's why there hasn't been a great war since 1945, precisely because the United States finally became involved in Western Europe and the Far East. And you know, President Roosevelt said in his war message after Pearl Harbor. Uh, I won't quote him exactly because it would be lengthy, but the, the burden of it was we must have a deterrent strength that ensures that this form of treachery, this is a quote, this form of treachery never again endangers us. And, and the Americans have done that. They've not been an appeasement power, and they have possessed a deterrent force that has prevented anybody from attacking them. Uh, but what we've had now in the last 20 years is this technique of certain elements not directly identified with nations skulking about committing terrorist acts in a way that can't be attributed directly to another country. That's, that's the, the, if you will, the, uh, the destructive element of the world trying to get around the Roosevelt policy of deterrent force. Now, of course, it doesn't work because the Americans and practically every other government are, are hostile to terrorists and, and have, and have counterattacked the terrorists very, very severely. And, and, I mean, there are terrorist incidents, but compared to what we feared after 9-11, I think the major governments of the world have combated terrorism very effectively. Finally, let me ask, I mean, in these uh, cases, World War I, you know, where uh, we stumbled into this war and Canada lost so many because basically we were the colonial cannon fodder. In fairness, we were defending we were defending a principle. I mean, we weren't under threat and we were defending a principle. All right, well, we were uh, a colony of Great Britain. Well, an autonomous dominion. It was a okay. kind of not completely sovereign, but not 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 a, not a colony anymore. But they were happy to see, say, the Newfoundland regiments go front and center, right? I, I, I would join. I think what we're working up to is whether our gallant British uh, 
uh, allies and, and, and kindred nation were a little cavalier the way they deployed Commonwealth forces. And I would, and that's certainly what the Australians feel about Gallipoli. Sure. That it was an insane operation, and, and their men were just squandered in it. And, and you can say that about Newfoundland. You, look, frankly, it's a smaller thing, but in the Second World War, uh, it was outrageous what the British did with our lads at Dieppe, you know. It's the stupidest mission in the whole war on the Allied side. And we took, what, a 60% casualty rate for, for a one-day sojourn in the beach of Dieppe? Well, and so you can understand where Quebec might have been a little reluctant on the conscript, conscription question. Yeah, they had no loyalty to the French, and and they didn't particularly have a loyalty to the English. I'll tell you where the French is, is never publicized, but in the Korean War... Uh, the, the Quebec would have approved conscription to go and fight the communists because uh, you know, Quebec in those days was extremely Catholic and very anti-communist. All right. Well, uh, again, it's all noteworthy history. Yeah, they never doubt that the French Canadians would defend Quebec. I mean, they, they've kept the Americans out of here in the Revolutionary War. They sent uh, Benjamin Franklin packing in, in <laughs> 1775, and then they, 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 they held the line for us in, in the War of 1812 also. Yeah, and Benedict Arnold decided he'd make his home in Quebec, ultimately, when he uh, quit the American forces. <laughs> all good history. It's always a pleasure, Conrad. I really appreciate it. And, of course, lest we forget, it's important to remember... Uh, how these things come into play, uh, and we will certainly on Sunday in the 11th hour. They were all brave men. They were all brave men, and we shouldn't forget that. Duly noted, Conrad Black, author, commentator, historian. We'll talk again next Friday. Thank you.